Blog Talk Radio. Hey folks, you got Jerry Steinberg here, State of the U podcast today. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. Maybe we'll get some live callers. Uh, we're going to discuss teams baseball. We're going to discuss the NFL draft that just passed last weekend and, and how the University of Miami Hurricanes that were drafted this year um, are going to fit in with their teams. Um, we're talking about a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, the place to start for today's show, though, would have to be baseball. The University of Miami just completed a three-game sweep over Georgia Tech. Now, mind you, Georgia Tech is not uh, the best team uh, in the ACC. In fact, they're run-of-the-mill, medium, um, you know, just just your run-of-the-mill team towards the bottom half of the ACC Coastal. But the University of Miami just completed a three-game sweep in which they outscored uh, Georgia Tech 52-5. to now, now, take that into consideration for a second. 52-5 to over another uh, division opponent. Uh, this is not NYIT, who they, they also put a beating on the week before. I mean, this this is was a real thorough sweep this past weekend. Uh, the pitching was great. Uh, the hitting was great. The hitting was beyond great. Uh, David Thompson had a game where he had three homers and nine RBIs, including – a grand slam. I thought Jacob Hayward really stepped up. And um, I just thought the baseball team really played out of their minds this past weekend. Uh, also joining me on the podcast today is Mr. Scott Salomon. Scott, before we get to anything else, man, give me your feedback on, on the baseball team. Uh, I think they're starting to gel. I really think that uh, the pitching and the hitting are coming together, which is something that really has not been happening in the last couple of seasons They've either been pitching well or they've been hitting well. They haven't been doing both well together at the same time. Uh, They're not only getting good starts from the starting pitchers, but the bullpen is is, uh, uh, pitching very well. Uh, They've only given up a few runs over the last 18 or 19 games. Uh, The uh, hitters are doing phenomenal at the plate. They're playing great defense. Uh, they're, they're just playing incredible baseball right now. So, Scott, something interesting I did um, for those that uh, follow the podcast um, and for those that are on Facebook that follow us on uh, the State of the U or, or on uh, Kings Baseball, which is a group on, on Facebook where we talk about all these similar type issues, I asked folks to compare this team to, to recent teams and recent memory that fell short. Uh, and I'm going to ask you now, Scott, now you responded on the Canes baseball group, but, but talk to me now about what's different about this team, if anything, from maybe the past two or three years where we also had high expectations and the team fell short. Well, this team just just is, is packed at the plate. Uh, you really can't pitch around anybody to get to somebody else. I mean, everybody in that lineup is capable of getting on base and is capable of doing some damage. I mean, when you have Jacob Hayworth, I'm sorry, Jacob Hayward sitting on the bench who who can't get off the bench all year because Carl Chester's playing very well as a freshman, and then Hayward finally gets his trips to the plate against uh, the New York Institute of Technology, and he starts hitting the ball out of the ballpark, and, and he continues it against Georgia Tech. Uh, once we have a, a, a 15-run lead, uh, I mean, you know, what more is to say about that? You've got a freshman starting over an upperclassman 
who is hitting home runs in consecutive games. There's only so many spots in the outfield. Uh, I think that the middle infield, uh, those bats could be shored up a little bit. Uh, you know, you know, Brandon Lopez is having some problems at the plate, but he's still getting on base every now and then. Uh, you know, and one thing Ron Fraser taught me is, is you want the guys in the middle of your field to be there for, for defense anyway. Uh, and anything you get, you get from them at the plate is a bonus. So, you know, th- this team really could go down as one of the greatest U.N. baseball teams in history. You know, I'm just a little disappointed in how they finished up on a couple of road trips, um, but that's just me wanting this team to be perfect and and me expecting this team to win every series. Uh, I, I think this team is good enough to win every series. I think they're good enough to win every game. Um, I, I just think that sometimes they, they have mental lapses and sometimes I, I don't think they play to their potential. Uh, but But from a physical standpoint, this team is as good as they come. Now, Scott, you you make some excellent points there. Uh, to me, you know, I, I have I'm not a Keens fan in terms of baseball. Way back, I you know I follow basketball religiously. I follow football like no other. I mean, you could say that for a lot of teams, alumni and fans for football. But I've kind of picked up baseball a little bit recently, and in the past couple of years, I've noticed they've been kind of a um, station to station sacrifice bunt steal a base here or there. Uh, now, this year, uh, between David Thompson, who I believe is leading the entire NCAA in home runs and leading the ACC in RBIs, if I'm not mistaken, and Zach Collins, um, you have an incredible, uh, powerful one-two punch. The, the team's identity has changed a little bit. Am I wrong? Well, the, the team's identity is, is pretty much the same as it was last season. I mean, what, you know, last season they had a little bit more firepower uh, that, that they lost to uh, the Major League Baseball draft. Uh, but, you know, this year, you know, it, it's just all coming together. You know, they're they're looking at, you know, you've got DT playing third base, who is leading the the nation in RBIs, is leading the ACC in home runs. Uh, I believe the the nation leader in home runs is the kid by the name of Ed Rios, who is down the street at FIU. Um, who uh, I, I had a chance to see a couple weeks ago, and you know this kid's you know pretty good. He's playing for Turtle Thomas out at FIU. I don't know how we missed him, but you can't sign everybody, um, you know. But you know DT's playing incredible. Zach Collins is hitting lights out. Hayward's hitting the ball out of the park. Uh, Willie Abreu hit one out the other night. He's got a couple home runs this season. You know the, the Hurricanes is 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 when they can play hit and run. It's not necessarily just hitting the ball out of the park. It's when they can get a runner on, move them over, and then get them to score. Because when they can play hit and run, they can play with anybody. You know, they, the key for them is the timely hitting. It's when they're poking out 12 to 15 minutes a game. That's when you know you're scratching out 7 to 8 runs a game because the team runs well on the base pass. They make good decisions. They rarely get caught stealing. Uh, Eskandarian is 18 for 18 on the season. Uh, he's their leading base stealer. Um, and and got- I'm actually looking at the Scott. I don't mean to cut you off. I'm actually looking at the stats on on uh, 
on uh, the Hurricanes' main website, um, hurricanesports.com. It shows Iskandarian's 22 of 23, which is pretty darn good anyway. But <laughs> and, uh, I tell you, watching the games, though, Iskandarian's very clutch. I think Chris Barr, uh, who's – it looks like he's like sixth or seventh on the team and batting average, you know, doesn't have the biggest power numbers, no home runs, but 24 RBIs. That guy's that kid's been clutch, too. Chris Barr's come around lately. He uh, he's been solid at first base. He's got a good glove. He's been able to dig balls out of the dirt, and he's he's been getting clutch hits. He's had a couple game winning hits. Uh, I believe the other night he went four for five, and he wasn't even player of the game. Yeah, uh, it's easy for uh, Thompson and and you know um, Collins to to overshadow some of these other guys, but. Uh, you know, Iskandarian's having a great year. Hitting 391, he's got 47 RBIs of his own, which I believe is second on, uh, actually third on the team. Uh, Garrett Kennedy uh, continues to to really rate. Um, I mean, they're 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 just a deep lineup. That 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 to me is the biggest difference. Um, I, I feel like last year's team was more of a, you know, like I said, station to station. You know, occasionally they get a little pop, but um, I, th- this year they just feel like they can rake one through nine, and um, that, that's a big difference to me. Um, let's talk about their, their pitching, though, Scott. Is their pitching as good as it's been the past couple of years? I mean, it seems awfully damn good, but is it as good as it's been? Well, you've got to look at how many times a week they play. It's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen from tournament time because you've got – Woodry, who pitches on Friday night, okay, he's going to be he's going to be your ace, for lack of a better term. Suarez is really the ace of the staff, but he pitches on Saturday, so he's going to be your game two starter, okay. And they're going to want to position everybody to have Woodry or Suarez being able to go again on Sunday in the championship game should they make it that far in the ACC tournament. Uh, because they're going to start Wednesday against the Virginia Tech Georgia Tech winner. So I would want to throw somebody like Enrique Sosa out or maybe throw a Danny Garcia out there who would maybe be a Wednesday starter. Because the Hurricanes typically right. play games. They, they'll typically play a Tuesday or Wednesday game during the week, and then they'll have three games on the weekend. So right. Virginia Tech or Georgia Tech, especially Georgia Tech, a team that you've just seen and destroyed three games in a row, I'd probably throw Danny Garcia out there or Brian Garcia, uh, whichever. I always get to confused. One is a stopper and the other one's is a spot starter. Um, but I, I would throw Garcia I think out you're, there. I think you're thinking of – I think it isn't Danny Gar- – or Brian Garcia is a closer, right? I think you're thinking of Derek Brian O'Brien. Garcia is a closer. Danny Garcia is a midweek uh, starter sometimes, yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. You and know, then, you can uh, maybe start with uh, Derek Bopez maybe. Yep. You know, maybe starting. He he's been pitching real well lately. He gave you six strong the other night. Uh, you know, and and as long as they can keep the three of those guys together in the big games and get six or seven innings out of them, then you bring in Briggy, and then you can bring in Garcia to close. You know, you're 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 lights out. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, uh, the pitching's almost been overshadowed by. Uh, how well they're hitting the ball right now. Um, you know, well, the, bullpen up, is, the bullpen is phenomenal. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, you got Cooper Hammond, uh, has pitched well, uh, out of the pen. Uh, Garcia's been the closer. He's pitched pretty well. Uh, Bo Perez has kind of gone back and forth. And, of course, Michael Mediavilla, I think I'm saying his name right, has kind of been their, their middle relief guy. Um, and he, he's made a lot of, um, had a nice, had a lot of nice appearances this year. So, I mean, they, they've got the guys, um, It'll be interesting to see if everybody shows up. I don't think, you know, again, I'm I'm kind of a college baseball neophyte, but I really enjoyed it the past couple of years. I've tried to keep uh, tabs on all the teams in the ACC. Uh, Louisville's had a remarkable year. Florida State's had their ups and downs, but they still look like a team that could definitely hit the ball. Um, there's a lot of good teams out there. But uh, well, I don't think... The thing about my... The thing about Miami's bullpen is, is they can get six innings out of a starter. I mean, what Morris likes to do is he likes to bring in each guy for one inning because it gives him a fresh arm every inning, and it also keeps him fresh for the next day. And that's going to help you in tournament time. But let me get right to the point, though, here. And correct me if I'm wrong. Now, I don't watch maybe more than once two college baseball games a year. When this Miami team's on, are they as good as any team in the country? I mean, is that just my bias for UM, or are they are they that good? They are as good as advertised. Uh, you know, they have this thing called RPI, which right. uh, is something that that D one baseball uses as their um, computerized uh, metric system to determine who the best team in the country is, and Miami's constantly been hovering in the top three. They have we have Dallas Baptist at number one, who plays in the American Athletic Conference. Okay. This team couldn't this team couldn't hang with Miami for three innings. Yeah. And I I was talking with Kendall Rogers on Twitter on Friday and you know they they believe in their system and, and you know they believe that it all is going to come out in the wash but you know, if Dallas Baptist gets to host a Super Regional and Miami doesn't for some reason, it's going to be the biggest farce to hit college baseball since since God knows when. Uh, now, you know, here's you the thing that, that the toughest next it, it, Go ahead, Scott. I'll, I'll get to you in a second. I was going to say, I'm it, glad you brought that up because that was going to lead to my next question. But finish your point first. I'm, I'm sorry about that. You know, Dallas Baptist's toughest opponent is Wyoming. You know, they haven't played anybody. They haven't beaten anybody uh, of any consequence. They, yeah, they, they've got 40 wins playing the Girl Scouts, you know. And, you know, to to get 40 wins in 50 games, yeah, that, that, that's a nice feat. But Little Leaguers do it all the time. You know, do that in the ACC. Do that in the SEC. You know, show me that in a good conference where you're playing good baseball. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I was going to ask you next. It's interesting that you brought up the RPI and, and who might get national seeds. Um, that was going to be my question for you. What, what's it going to take? How how much more does Miami need to do? they need to win the entire ACC tournament to get a national seed? I mean, are they definitely in line to host a regional? I mean, what? in your opinion, I know some of this stuff is in exact science, but in your, what, in your opinion, what are they playing for at this point? Well, they'll definitely host a regional. I mean, they're they're going to host uh, the first round of the regionals uh, after the the conference tournament play. Um, 
But whether or not they host a Super Regional, I think they need two wins in the ACC tournament. I think they need to get at least two, maybe three wins. Um, I think they, they, if they get to Sunday, they're they're guaranteed to be a national seed. Uh, because if they if they were to lose to Louisville for the ACC championship or lose to Florida State for the ACC championship, there really wouldn't be any harm in that uh, because those are going to be national seeds anyway. Now, FSU might not be a national seed right now because they lost a three-game series at home to Clemson over the weekend. So they yep. might fall out and Miami might get pushed up uh, based upon their productivity against Georgia Tech this weekend. Uh, but I, I think they need a good performance in the tournament. I think if they go way and egg in the tournament, I think it's it, it's going to leave a nasty uh, taste in the, in the mouth of the, of the uh, committee. If they lay an egg in the tournament, I'm really going to be upset. Uh, you know, this is where, um, you know, you and I have, have been talking all year about different wins that they've had. And, you know, I'm not a big believer in, you know, getting a lot of these these regular conference victories, you know, yes, Miami's supposed to get those wins. Miami's supposed to go to Duke and win three or win three at home against Wake Forest. You're supposed to win those games. But when you lose two out of three to Florida and you lose two out of three to Florida State and you lose two out of three to Virginia and you lose at Louisville, those are the games that really – upset me and, and irk me because those are the games that Jim Morris is notorious for losing. And those are the games that are going to stick in the minds of the voters. And the voters are going to say, yeah, they won all these games. They beat NYIT, you know, who beat the Girl Scouts, who uh, they scored 100 runs. They scored 100 runs, but really, what does that matter? What did they do against teams that that, that are going to make it into the tournament? I thought losing two out of three uh, to Virginia, I think that was in mid-April, late April, whatever it was, right before the Florida State series, uh, was was crucial because Florida State is still a good is still a good team. I I think the people that are doing the seeding could look at that two out of three loss to Florida State and they they absolutely annihilated Florida State in the last game of that series and and the first game was like an eighteen inning, you know, uh, toss up. I think that's forgivable. The first game in Florida State, if it wasn't for a wild pitch, that game could still be going on. Uh, You know, Derek uh, Boupre threw a wild pitch in the 17th inning that gave Florida State the winning run. Yeah. There was a lot of of mistakes on both ends of that game, though. (laughs) Florida State had Miami beat, I think, three or four times where Miami would just you know, just barely force an extra inning. So that that, that was a pretty incredible game. Um, but I, I I thought the Virginia series was costly. Um, you know, winning what they won at the end of the year might overcome that. I just thought that was a real uh, tough series to swallow. That was one where they needed to just go in and blast that team. I think Miami um, needs to not only win in the ACC tournament, but they need to win impressively. I think they need to really destroy some teams like like they've been doing lately. They need to put up double digit runs. They need to shut out some teams. They they need to crush Notre Dame, who I see as the only team in their bracket that that can compete with them. Uh, you know, in their pool, uh, and uh, they need to do some serious damage. They they need to play hurricane baseball the way they're capable of playing it. 
you know, I think if they have discipline at bats and, and you know, they make the, the opposing pitcher work, I think great things are going to happen for them. I, I just, I don't know, like I said, I sometimes feel like I'm talking at a turn a lot more when I talk Hurricanes baseball than I do when I talk Hurricanes basketball or football because I've been following those sports for a lot longer. But there's something about this team when I do get to watch them play, and I've been following, you know, Major League Baseball for a long time, which is almost like a whole different sport. But nonetheless, I look at this team, I just see a very, very deep lineup. Um, I don't worry about them physically. I worry about them mentally. Um, I, I, I worry about how Jim Morris is going to have this team ready to play. Um, and, and that's a concern that I've had the last several years. You know, I was at the regional last year, and they were the best team there. And they got destroyed by two freshmen from Texas Tech at their home stadium, and that should not happen. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, Scott. They just couldn't hit. They couldn't come up with the big hit, and they just couldn't generate offense. I mean, that that's why I'm encouraged. I just feel like this team doesn't have to work so hard to generate offense. I mean, they can, you know, one through nine, they can rake. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is last year's team was just as good as this year's team hitting-wise. Um, this year's team is coming up with the, with the clutch hits, and it's coming up with the power, but, you know, your lineup isn't that that significantly different. Uh, you lost some power from last year, um, but I believe that, you know, this team is faster. I believe this team is more deep. Uh, you've, you've got a lot more depth on this team. I think when you bring a pinch hitter off the bench, you, you're actually bringing in a, a better bat, except when you bring uh, Malik Rozier in. Um, I mean, he's a baseball player that should stick to football. Uh, but um, I, I just I just worry about this team being mentally prepared. I mean, that's that, that, that's my biggest phobia when it comes to Hurricane baseball. Because this team has been has been beaten in years past in games that that, that they shouldn't have been beaten. In. Yeah, I, that that's you know that's a fair point. I the one thing I'll disagree with you on. You said last year's team was just as good offensively as uh, this year's team. I, I don't believe David Thompson was as healthy and as productive <laughs> last year as he is this year. And and you know it, it takes more than one superstar to make for a you know, a fantastic lineup, and certainly they have more than just Thompson, but, uh, you know, it, there's a big difference in what he's doing. Um, oh, D.P. is much healthier this year than, than, he is, than he is now at this point, you know, uh, than he was last year. But, yeah, Zach Collins, you also lost some guys to the draft. Um, I think you're, 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 you, you've got some, some, some tougher uh, bats in the outfield um, this year. Um, you know, but your middle infield is the same. Uh, you know, I just think that, that this year they're getting the timely hits, whereas last year they weren't. They were leaving guys on base. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, that's fair enough. Anything else uh, before we move on, Scott? Anything else you want to add about the baseball team before we move on to the next topic? Um. Yeah, if uh, you haven't been out to Mark Light Stadium towards Mark, to Mark Light Field yet, I still call it Mark Light Stadium. If you haven't been out to Mark Light Field yet, uh, you really need to go out and say hello to the Wizard. 
the new Ron Fraser statue is up, and he greets everybody when you walk into the stadium. And uh, when you see the Wiz, go take a picture with him. He's very photogenic. He likes pictures with everyone. He doesn't turn anybody down. Um, don't ask him for an autograph. He's very shy. Uh, but he will take a picture with everyone and uh, just uh, go see the Wiz, give him a hug, and uh, go into the stadium. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to get down there. Uh, I, I, I like some of the work you've done on Facebook with some of your pictures next to the statue and, and obviously the articles you've done and uh, very well received by our audience here at the U as well as myself. So, um, yeah, I agree 100%. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the rest of the baseball season plays out. Um, I, I want to talk some NFL draft with you, Scott. Um, but before we get to that, uh, an underrated story today. Um, Miami lost the second assistant on uh, Coach Jim Laranga's staff when uh, Eric Conkle took the job at Louisiana Tech. And uh, we're certainly wishing good luck. Um, you know, that, that that staff is a big part of the reason why um, Coach Laranaga has been so successful. Uh, earlier, um, back in the spring, Michael Huger took the job as alma mater, Bowling Green. We wish him good luck as well. Um, Miami quickly replaced Huger with Jamal Brunt, who, you know, everything I've read and seen and heard about Jamal Brunt, he's a home run hire, um, a great replacement for Huger. Um, he's going to help with some of the analytics, some of the stuff that Huger did, but also it's more like the Conkle in terms of helping with uh, scheduling. Um, I don't know how much a part each guy played in terms of recruiting. But, I mean, to me, this is kind of a good story. Uh, you hate to see Coach L lose staff, um, but it shows that he's done a great job of uh, putting together staff first and foremost. Um, and most of those guys have been there going back to the George Mason days. Um, but but also that, you know, this program is heading in the right direction and, and should be sustainable. I mean, you, you look across the board, the Rick Patinos of the world, the John Calipari's, the Mike Krzyzewski's, um, your best coaches always lose assistants. So, well, it hurts to lose an assistant, and they, they really need to do their due diligence, which I have no doubt they will, uh, to find a replacement that fits in and, and keeps the, the ball moving forward to what they've already accomplished. It's a really good sign to me. Uh, do you agree or disagree with that, Scott? I think it's a great sign for your program when other colleges come and raid your program for assistance. Um, imitation is the highest form of flattery, and if other schools want to be like the University of Miami, then it says a lot about what Jim Laranaga has been doing here. Um, so I, I uh, take my hat off to, to Coach L and to his staff, I think they've done a remarkable job since they've been here. And um, it's just been a matter of time before this happens. If I'm Coach L, I'm getting Anthony Grant on the phone. And I'm offering him whatever it takes to get him here. Um, I, you know, I Anthony really, Grant. I was Anthony Grant a lot, too. I, I, really think that, I, I really think that him getting fired from Alabama was, you know, um, I, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but I, I thought it was a bad decision by by them. I thought he did a good job down there. I mean, he he never really got um, the top recruits, and he turned them into a defensive powerhouse. They just could never score enough. Um, he did a very good job at Alabama, 
and they never should have let him go. Billy Donovan hired him at Florida, and yep. then when Billy Donovan left, I don't think he was retained by Mike White, and I think he's out there and he's available. And, you know, Anthony uh, is the type of guy that, you know, you can hold on to as your top assistant. And, you know, I, I love Coach Laranega, but he's not getting any younger. Uh, I don't know if he's going to coach into his 80s, but, uh, you know, Anthony Grant well, certainly is a guy that, 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 that you can groom to take over the program one day. Well, Laranega you know, arguably – Laranaga's top assistant is Chris Caputo. Chris is still at UM. So Chris is a guy that, to me, has always felt like Laranaga's right-hand man from what I've observed. So him still being there, I mean, yeah, if Laranaga um, were to hang him up, as long as Caputo's there, he'd be the obvious successor. Now, if he could get a guy like Anthony Grant, and he'd be willing to wait, he'd, that'd be an interesting competition. I'll throw another name out there for you. Uh, former UM great back in the 90s when I was on campus um, who's been working with Andy Ensveld, did a fantastic job at Florida Gulf Coast and is now sitting with Andy Ensveld at uh, University of Southern California, Kevin Norris. Um, Norris was one of the only assistants I believe Ensveld brought from uh, Florida Gulf Coast to uh, USC with him. So obviously, you know, Andy Ensveld, who's a darling of, you know, <laughs> Cinderella's, a couple of years back, thinks that highly of Norris, that that'd be a name I'd keep an eye on. It'd be interesting. I don't know if Norris would have any interest of uh, leaving Ensel because obviously they're working towards, you know, bigger and better things on that staff. But, you know, with him being a UM alumni, that'd be a natural fit as well, in my opinion. I, th- I think Coach Laurinaitis is going to have his pick. I, I think that, that whoever he decides he wants to settle on, I think he'll be able to get whoever he wants. Because I, I think UM is becoming that type of job um, that uh, it's it, it, it's going to be a place that somebody's going to want to come to. You're not going to have to twist anybody's arm to come here. It, it'll be interesting. I mean, uh, Coach L has uh, many times um, on ACC teleconferences or, or when I've had the opportunity to interview him, uh, given much credit for UM's success since he came here. Uh, and, and also his past success at places, like I said, like George Mason, uh, to his coaching staff. So um, it's going to be critical. I, I didn't doubt that they didn't anticipate this and have a contingency plan in place on, on who they're looking at. I mean, they turned around and hired uh, Jamal Brown of Richmond pretty quickly, so they must have had an eye on him uh, when Mike Huger left. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but, um, college assistant coaches in basketball are, are to me very underrated. Um, you know, if you're anticipating that you're going to be a bubble team, uh, the schedule that you put together and, you know, the all important RPI, you mentioned it for baseball, it's important for basketball too. Um, how you put together your schedule and, and, and how you, um, get the most out of your roster is extremely underrated. And assistant coaches in college basketball to me are, um, overlooked often because the head coaches usually get the, you know, all guts and all the glory as well. So it'll be interesting to see. I just thought I'd bring that up as, you know, reported by um, the Palm Beach Post. So we expect that it's true, and we, we are anticipating this for a while. So we'll see what happens. But uh, let's move forward. I, I, I want to talk some NFL draft. Um before we get into specifics, what's your overall feeling, Scott? I mean, 
you and I have talked about this many times. The draft was like bittersweet for Kings fans. I mean, it's great to watch so many young men we've been rooting for for the past three, sometimes four years, uh, achieve their lifetime goals and get drafted. Um, other guys didn't make it, but, you know, got maybe contracts as undrafted free agents. Uh, but but how do you, as a Miami Hurricane fan, alumnus, you know, somebody who covers his team, how do you reconcile the fact that they had so many players that, that drew attention and yet they were under 500 last year? It's very simple. They have an awful coaching staff. <laughs> um, I, 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 don't think there's, I don't think there's a science to it. I, I don't think there's much that really needs to be looked at. I, I think that um, the, 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 the players have proven that they can play. The NFL has come in and said, your seniors are good enough to play in our league. Now, are they making a statement that your underclassmen aren't? I don't think so. Um, I think that when you look at a guy like like Anthony Ciccolo, who um, gets MVP honors in the East-West game and plays in a different scheme than he played for for four years in Miami and takes a week of practice and and plays like an all-star, I think it says something that you're not developing your talent. And I think that they are married to a certain, a, a certain scheme. They're married to a certain philosophy. And that philosophy might have worked at Temple. It might have worked in the old Atlantic 10 or whatever other crap conference he came from. Uh, but it's not going to work in the ACC. And I think that it's proven that uh, statistically um, it's not going to work. And uh, I, I don't know how many times I can say this. I don't know how many times I can write this. Um, but um, I, I wish, as I told you today, that Jeffrey Loria could be the athletic director for the Hurricanes for a day and fire Al Golden for lack of productivity. Um, you know, that is a sta- – the NFL made a statement. You know, everyone wanted to know, why does this team go 6-7 and seven with all of this talent? You know something? I want to know the same thing. I got a pretty good idea, okay, but I'd like to hear it from the professionals. Now, I see this team week in and week out, okay, and, you know, we all want to know, why do the cornerbacks line up nine yards off the ball? Why do the linebackers line up so deep off the ball when they know that that the B-back is going to get the ball against Georgia Tech 37 times a game. You know, yeah. why are these things I, happening? You know, I, if you I know think, the team's going to um, run, why don't you stack the box? Yeah, I think without getting into specifics of, of you know, like the Georgia Tech game and things like that, which uh, drove me equally as mad as you, um, we can all conclude that based on the NFL draft, last year's team severely underachieved. Um, you know, I and I, I'm not trying to forgive this coaching staff for the indictments that, you know, you so eloquently brought up and that our, you know, our fan base doesn't always eloquently bring up but brings up pretty regularly. Um, I'm not trying to let the coaching staff off the hook. I, I felt like the team was pretty close to turning the corner last year and just that that second half against Florida State was just the 
you know, took the air out of the tires. But, um, you know, you look at Eric Flowers and Philip Dorsett in the first round, um, you know, Clive Walford, Duke Johnson, um, you know, so many other players. Uh, Chicklow went in the sixth round. Um, you, know, you know, all these guys that were that were picked and obviously were on NFL teams' radars, it does not add up to a six and seven team. I, I didn't even mention Denzel Perryman, who um you know, you Jerry, know every every coach has his or her defining moment. And for Randy Shannon it was the USF game. And if I can bring up a non cane related incident today, I was watching the Marlins Braves game. And with two out in the bottom of the ninth, I had sent an email, and I said Mike Mar, I said Mike Redman is about to get fired today. I said if they get no hit, he's getting fired. And he didn't get no hit, but he got fired five minutes later. And this was his defining moment. Al Golden's defining moment was that game in Virginia. And they played yes. so poorly at Virginia. A game that they were supposed to win. Mike London was on the hot seat and he got a contract extension as a result of that game. I, I thought the defining moment was the second half against Florida State and it could have been it could have been a defining moment that Al Golden was hoping for, but it ended up being, you know, the opposite. Well, and, and the second half of the Florida State game was was supposed to be his signature win. Yeah. But Virginia set the table for futility. And it went to show how bad of a coach he really is and how he can't even get his team ready to beat a mediocre Virginia team. You would have thought they were playing the Dallas Cowboys that day. Yeah, it 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 certainly wasn't one for the uh, record books, and and that's one that you just want to burn the film. Um, I I can't explain it. I mean, you got first round talent on offense, at least second round talent in Perryman on defense, and and some other players. And uh, you know, it, it's it is it's perplexing. So the you know, to sum up my point, that draft was pretty bittersweet. Um. It was so nice to see for the first time in a long time, you know, Keynes go in the first round and go in the subsequent ground, rounds afterward. I mean, it was nice to see Keynes get picked. It was exciting. It made me feel good, at least temporarily, about the program. But you look back and you're like, how the hell did all these players add up to a 6-7 and seven team? The but guy anyway. That you really ha- the guy that you really have to feel good about is Andrew Swazi. Yeah. And that's been going on for a long time. He's a strength and conditioning coach that gets these guys ready for the draft. He gets them ready for the combine. Um, He he, he keeps them healthy during the season. I mean, he's he's the most valuable coach to have on that staff. I I have no doubt about that. And um, if you – since Swazi's been there – if you listen to what some of the Kings have gone on to have successful NFL careers, um, 
you know, from Clinton Portis to Andre Johnson, you know, I I can go on and on and on. A lot of them have given credit to Swayze. Um, not to mention that, you know, in the past, the culture at UM has been so incredibly competitive. Um, I had the honor of talking to Clinton Portis uh, about a month before the NFL draft, and we talked about that, and he said what UM needs to do to get back to where they were was you have to have teams where you have no idea who the best player is. That that guys are pushing each other so hard, and you know that you don't know who, who's the best. He he said it. He said who's the best player on that 0102 team? Was it me? Was it Ken Dorsey? Was it Andre Johnson? Was it Jonathan Vilma? Was everybody? You had no idea. So when was when was the last time you heard a player say that was credit Yeah. I, I don't want to get into too much of a golden bashing fest because if the season doesn't drastically improve on, on what a lot of pundits are expect, expecting and, you know, what they've accomplished the past couple of years, we're going to have plenty of time for that. But I want to ask you, Scott, and I'll start. I'll go pick by pick. I want to ask you, you know, putting your Miami bias aside, how you feel about the pick, how you feel about the player's future, how you feel about the player's fit for their specific franchise, starting with Eric Flowers, picked ninth overall by a New York Giants. What do you think about that pick? Um, I think Flowers is going to uh, play right tackle. Um, I don't think he's going to play the blind side. Uh, I think he's going to start on the right side. And uh, I, I think he's 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 turned into a very good offensive lineman. He's a nasty, mean son of a gun who – uh, protected Brad Kaya very well last year. I remember uh, some guys taking some cheap shots on Kaya last year. I don't remember really which game it was. It might have been Nebraska. Uh, and I think Flowers and Feliciano went after them and uh, got flagged for, for, for some penalties for retaliation. Uh, and, and, and that's what you want to see. You want to see guys protecting their, their quarterback. And uh, ever since then, I've had a lot of a lot more uh, uh, respect, I should say, for, for for Eric Flowers. He's going to be a great pro, and Eli Manning is going to be uh, very happy with him. I I agree with you. Uh, a lot of people felt like he went um, too high at nine overall, but I, you know, to me the toughness. Uh, he came back from a torn meniscus two weeks after surgery. Started against Florida State, went up against one of the best defensive ends in the country, Mario Edwards, completely shut him down. Uh, you look at that performance, and that says everything you need to know because um, in the NFL, to me, and, you know, listening to former NFL players talk about this, you're going to have a lot of times where you're not 100%. The guys that can muster up the toughness, uh, you know, the mental capacity, to continue to perform at their best when they're not feeling their best are, are the guys that have long, successful careers. And, you know, Flowers obviously has that toughness. Um, the next guy I want to talk about is a real interesting case. Uh, Phil Tersek on Indianapolis. I think he went 28th overall. Um, Indianapolis had a lot of needs besides wide receiver. You know, they have T.Y. Hilton. Um, you know, they, they picked up Andre Johnson, the free agency. This off season, they they have a you know number of targets for Andrew Luck. How do you feel he fits in there? Well, T.Y. Hilton's going into a contract year, 
And um, I think that they're looking at uh, Philip possibly as a replacement for T.Y. in the event that they can't come to terms with him. Uh, they also realize that Andre Johnson's not going to be there for the long haul. He's only got a couple of years left. Uh, so he's going to be there to, to groom Philip Dorsett. Uh, and speed kills. You know, in in that division, uh, you know, you need speed. Okay, you you need speed to be able to get past the New England Patriots and the AFC if you're going to go to the Super Bowl. Okay, they need to put as much speed on the field as they can, especially with New England losing their their cornerbacks. Uh, I think it's imperative that every team stock up on on receivers to try to find a way to dethrone the Super Bowl champions. Uh, it, it, I think it was a good move for Indianapolis. I think that Indianapolis always likes to take the philosophy that they're going to take the best player available, and and that's what they did. Chuck Pagano also has University of Miami ties. He was a former UM coach uh, back in the day, and uh, I think he had no problems pulling uh, the trigger and taking another one of his hurricanes. I I, I like the pick, too, um, because like you said, Dorsett has rare speed. He's not just a 40-yard dash uh, a burner, I think his, you know, his game speed is very rare. Uh, he really improved as a player this year with his hands. Um, I don't know how good a route runner he is because he wasn't really asked to do that much at UM. A lot of nine routes. Um, but if you look at what he did on his pro day and if you look at how he improved overall as a player, um, the case could be made that he improved enough that he can turn into a very solid pro. So I, I, I like the pick, too. I, I talked with some folks on the Colts website, SB Nation website, and they seemed a little disappointed because they felt like the Colts had bigger uh, pressing needs. But you bring up an interesting point with T.Y. Hilton being a free agent. Andre Johnson's age, obviously a concern. Uh, Luck is going to need targets um, down the line. So good pickup. Uh, what about Denzel Perryman to the Chargers? Um, they the Chargers have an interesting situation. They have a lot of linebackers, including Manti Teo from uh, Notre Dame. How, how do you feel Perryman fits in? Um, that was a very surprising pick. I, I, I didn't see where he fit in with Manti Teo in this game. Um, you, you know, Teo didn't have such a great year. You know, maybe they're looking at moving him. Uh, maybe he's not in their long-term plans. Uh, Perriman's just such a great player. I mean, he'll fit in anywhere he goes. Uh, you know, uh, El Presidente is going to be a great pro. You know, no doubt about it. He's he's cut from the same cloth as former uh, Miami middle linebackers. You know, he's 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 cut from the same cloth as a John Beeson or uh, not as great as a Ray Lewis, but you know, they've got the same mentality and the same work ethic. Um, I'm sure he'll do well. I just don't know why he's in San Diego. I can't justify the pick. Yeah, I I, I don't get that either. Uh, now, they, gosh, the guy's name is slipping uh, my mind. They did have somebody that I think was due to be a free agent among their linebacker core. Um, and I think they kind of went to that best player available type thought process too. I, I worry about Perryman at the next level. Um not that I don't think he'll be productive and it'll be good. I, I didn't like when he dropped back in coverage at UM. Uh, I, I don't know if he's an every-down player. That, that's my concern. I don't know if he can stay in the field for nickel sets. Um, 
it'll be interesting. I think he can be a more effective player if they use him to blitz more. I, I think he was underutilized as a blitzer at UM. Um, obviously, sideline to sideline, you can run down guys. Uh, he's very strong at the point of attack, extremely smart player, makes reads, able to make a lot of plays in the opposing team's backfield because he's able to see what's going on um, very quickly. There are a number of times this past season where he made plays. If you go back and watch the replay and watch the film of it, you have no idea where he is where he is, but he's right where he needs to be to make a play because he saw something. Um, So a very intuitive, intellectual player, I think that's the aspect of his game that's underrated. I just felt like out in space or dropping back in coverage a little bit. Maybe not so much out in space. I have no problem with him, you know, chasing down running backs in the flat and things like that. I just don't feel like dropping back in coverage against tight ends or even in zone or whatever, uh, you know, um, scheme you're running. I just didn't feel that comfortable with him in coverage. Um, but I still think he'll be a productive and very solid player. Uh, how about Clive Walford to the Raiders? That one kind of surprised me. Um, I know they have Derek Carr, their quarterback, and they, they need that tight end security blanket. How do you see uh, Walford fitting in with the Raiders? He's going to be a seam runner. Uh, I, I think that Derek Carr is going to use him uh, as you know, Brad Kaya used him. He's going to be their middle of the field guy. He's going to be able to spread the field, uh, and he's going to be able to give their speedy wide receivers some room to run. He's going to work perfectly with Amari Cooper. Uh, Cooper's going to take the edge, and uh, he'll be able to run. You know, Cooper's going to, going to take the outside routes. Walford will be, be, be working off the line, taking the same routes. Um, I, I, I think he's going to be a very good addition. I think he's he might be the best tight end that uh, the Raiders have had since uh, Todd Christensen. And, and you know, I I love the pick. Um, I, I, I'm just concerned um with Walford going to a franchise that hasn't had a lot of success. That that's really my only concern. Um but I, I think the Raiders had an excellent draft. I thought Amari Cooper uh was one of the two top players in the draft overall. Um you know, I, I can't see him busting. He just the guy's just so solid. Um so if the Raiders can get it turned around and be successful as a franchise, I, I, I love the pick. Um, now he's going to go as far as Derek Carr will take him. What's that? He's going to go as far as as Derek Carr will take him. Yeah. Is Derek Carr the answer, though? I, you know, I, I watched the Raiders play maybe three or four times last year. Uh, I saw some things I really liked from him. You know, typical rookie mistakes here and there. But um, I, I, I felt like he was kind of – you know, that, that team – it's been a long time since they've had a, a solid offensive line. I, you know, he took a beating not as bad as maybe his brother did back when he was a number all number one overall pick with the Houston Texans way back in the day, uh, David Carr. But I thought he took a beating. Uh, you know, if they can't protect him, um, it doesn't matter who he's throwing to. Well, they also had Tony Toronto head coach. you got you got to give him a few bonus points for that. Yeah. Well, the next guy I want to talk to you about is obviously one of the more popular players in in recent UM history, Uh, the all-time leading rusher, all-time leader in yards from scrimmage, Mr. Duke Johnson. Uh, I was crossing my fingers that the New York Jets would take him as (laughs) 
they're my favorite team. When he slipped down to Cleveland Browns, I was a little disappointed. How do you see uh, Duke fitting in in Cleveland? Um, I feel bad for Duke uh, because nobody fits in in Cleveland. Um, (laughs) Cleveland is just a godforsaken organization that can't get out of its own way. Um, They need to settle on a quarterback, um, and if it's Luke McCown, we're all in trouble. Uh, Well, actually, I could care less, so not all of us. Um, Duke is clearly better than than what they have in Terrence West and Isaiah Crowell. Terrence West tweeted out that he was going to beat out Duke Johnson and uh, that he wasn't afraid of him. Well, let me tell you something, Terrence West. You're probably not listening, but you suck compared to Duke Johnson. You can't even carry his jock. Um, Duke Johnson should be starting for that team. He's a three-back down. Um, he can do it all. He can return kicks. He can he he, he can do everything. Um, I mean, I, I've loved Duke Johnson since his freshman year when he came from New Orleans. Um, I wish that kid nothing but success. Um I just wish he was taken by a real NFL team and not by the Cleveland Browns. I mean, I'll people disagree go to Cleveland and die. I'll disagree with you slightly on one point. I, I hate. I, I just, I just don't think Manziel is going to ever be much of anything. You know, I, I just, I hate their quarterback situation, whether it's McCown or, or Manziel. You know, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on their running game. But I like their offensive line. Um, it takes a lot for me to give an FSU player credit, but I thought Cam Irving was a great pickup. Um, the guy can play tackle. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about an all-pro level, but he, he's definitely an NFL tackle prospect. And he played – they switched him to center this year, and he was dominating at center. Um, you know, they have, Alex, they have Alex Mack. I was just going to say that. They have Alex Mack, um, you know, who's who's a very good – NFL center, and obviously Joe Thomas is an all-world tackle. They, they have a good offensive line in Cleveland. So, you know, even if the team is terrible, Duke Johnson might have some decent holes to run behind um, this coming year because I, I think they've done a good job up front. Now, I don't know who they're going to throw the ball to. I don't know who's going to be throwing the ball. And that's going to put a tremendous amount of pressure uh, on their running game, you know, I, I think Duke Johnson's clearly going to be the favorite to be starting back over Terrence West, and I forget the other kid's name they have that that played a little last year as a rookie. But um, Isaiah Crowell. Crowell, that's right. Crowell and West were kind of interchangeable, and they both had moments, but neither was consistent. That, that's why I think Duke Johnson could really step in and, and get a lot of touches. Um. But I like their offensive line. That, that's all I'm saying. I, I don't like that team, but I like their offensive line. So maybe Duke, you know, can at least be productive. If not on, you know, a fantastic team, at least he can be productive because they have a good old line. Um, some of the other guys, um, John Feliciano, um, you know, also went to Oakland with Walford. Um, Anthony Chicolo went to the Steelers in the sixth round. And then you had a bunch of UM guys that, that – uh, were signed as undrafted free agents. Uh, let me just ask you, best of the rest, what, what do you see? Anything good? Well, Darius Gunther is going to make the uh, Packers. 
I, I, I won't disagree with you. I, I, I love Gunther's size. Um, Technique-wise, I thought he was... I think they're going to turn him into a safety, and I think he's he's going to be he's going to be a, a player that's going to it's going to turn some heads. Yeah, no, I I I wouldn't be surprised by that. I I just, he ran a, a really poor forty uh, at the combine, and that probably cost him being picked in maybe the fifth, sixth, or seventh round. Uh, his forty time was I think in the four high four sixes or low four sevens. Uh, really yeah, poor for a corner, but I, I like the way he played on the field. Though I, I like his size. Um, he, he has good recovery skills. He has good ball skills. Uh, I'm not sure if he's the best tackler, um, but I, I think he's an NFL player. I, I could see that, especially if he could play some special teams. Uh, I think Harrison Armbruster was signed by the Jaguars, and. Um, Maybe I'm going to the well one too many times. I'm not expecting an Alan Hearns part two here, but something about a UM undrafted free agent going to the Jaguars for a second year in a row that I like. I like Armbruster. I think he can play special teams. I think he's got good size to play some linebacker, maybe even be a situational pass rusher. I think Armbruster could be a undrafted free agent that, that might stick. Um, yeah, when, McDermott. When you talk about a team like the Jaguars, you know, anything's possible. Yeah, well, they have plenty of holes to fill, um, so that that'll help this cause too. I think McDermott went to the Cowboys. That'll be tough because they're pretty deep on their offensive line, um, and he's not a great athlete. He's a very good um, tactician at center. The only but thing I, McDermott I, I, has going for him is he can play guard and center. Yeah, um, Olson Pierre. When he got signed by the Bears, I, I couldn't figure it out. I, I, I'm not trying to knock the kid, but I, 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 I you know, went in my mind's eye and tried to think of, like, him making an entire, you know, one single play last year, um, maybe early in his career. I mean, I know he had a big sack of Logan Thomas a couple of years back. I, I don't like that kid's chances because I just don't think he makes enough plays. Um, he make enough plays at the college level. Um, and then other than that, Jake Heaps got signed by the Jets. Ryan Williams went to the Bengals. I I like Ryan Williams a whole lot better than Jake Heaps. Um, I I can't figure out. Jake Heaps is the second best quarterback on that roster behind uh, Bryce Petty. (laughs) I I don't think Jake Heaps is is a better quarterback than um, Ryan Fitzpatrick. If you want to argue that he's better than Geno Smith, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I might hear you out there because uh, Geno's a little bit of a turnover machine. Um, I, I, I think I think Jake Heaps going to have his work cut out to, to compete for the number four spot with Matt Sims, to be honest with you. I, uh, actually, Jake will... I actually, last year, I thought Matt Sims was, was the best quarterback on, uh, on that roster. Who was the best quarterback on the roster? Matt Sims. Nah, let me just tell you as a Jet fan that watches too much preseason football, Matt Sims might have the best arm on that roster. He's not the best quarterback on that roster. Um, he's got a great arm. He's got good footwork. He's, he's got a good head. He's got good pedigree. I think if they invested some time into him I think, and they gave him reps with the first team, 
I think he'd be able to play. I think he's a player. I, I think they. I think. I think they. I think a couple of coaching staffs ago, or a couple not coaching staffs, a couple of offensive coordinators ago, did give him a shot. And you know, he got in some games late in the season um, when there are injuries, and and really didn't show that much. I, I have nothing against the kid. I love Phil Sims. Um, you know, I rooted for Chris Sims who. You know, took a couple beatings in the NFL and 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 really never got a fair shake, in my opinion. Uh, you know, I just I'm just not seeing it in Matt Sims. But is he that much worse than Geno Smith? You know, I I, I can't even argue with you there. I, you know, what Geno Smith has shown in two years as an NFL starting quarterback, it's hard to really say. You know, who's worse than him? So interesting point. I, I don't think Heaps is going to stick, though, to be honest with you, Scott. No, he's okay. Nah. Okay, so we've covered some, some keen things, um, as we like to do in this show. Uh, we sometimes like to go off the beaten track and talk about uh, other things in sports. Um, and we have some time, if you want to stick around for a couple more minutes and talk. Um, let me just get right to it. The Flake Gate. They came out, they suspended... Tom Brady, four games. They fined the team a million dollars. They took a first and a fourth round draft pick away. Uh, you know, I, I'm a longtime Jets fan. Hard for me to remain impartial. You're a longtime Dolphins fan. Hard for you to remain impartial. Let's do our best here. What do you think? What's your take on it? I have two two conceptual philosophies on this. First is you have to look at the act. The act is the balls were deflated. Okay? That in and of itself goes toward the integrity of the game and it goes toward the outcome of the game. And your intention is to manipulate the outcome of the game. Therefore, you must be punished and it must be penalized. Second, during the investigation, he did not cooperate fully. And... Therefore, I think the cover-up was worse than the crime. And I, I'm going I'm I'm to take it one step further. Brady didn't cooperate. Robert Kraft came out like a petulant child uh, during Super Bowl week, uh, demanding apologies, um, shoving this environmental theory down our throats about why the balls were deflated, as if we're all stupid. You know, well, they, well, they're, they're, they're saying that the kid was losing weight and they were calling him the deflator. You know, and, and yeah, you've he, got guys he, like, like A.J. Feely coming out now saying that Brady's been doing this for years. Yeah, didn't uh, they say something about the, the text message about the deflator had to do with weight loss or something ridiculous yeah. like that? Like, we're so, yeah. we're so stupid that we're going to actually buy that? I mean, yeah, come on. And, and, that, and that, that actually came from the Patriots. You know, and if stupidity was a crime, they'd all be doing life. Um, I think, I, I think, I think the NFL is trying to send a message to the Patriots. And I know Robert Kraft, um, you know, has a friendship with Goodell, and he's a, he's a big-time player, uh, you know, in NFL owners' meetings. But, I mean, enough is enough. They they got well, a easy on spot. Goodell yeah. is serving as the judge or as the arbitrator, in the appeal. Now, that can go both ways. 
he could take his hardline justice approach and be, you know, become B for T justice and say, no, I'm keeping the original penalties. Or he can pretend like he's Bob Kraft's buddy and say, you know what, I'm going to make it a half million, I'll make it two games, and instead of losing two picks, you only lose one. And then he saves face with everybody, which I think would totally suck. And I, I, I got a problem with the whole thing. I, I just can't, uh, you know, all right, so, so, like, I'm a Jets fan. And if the same exact situation happened with the Dolphins, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the phone with me and you're a Dolphins fan, I'd be more sympathetic to the Dolphins. Um, I, I just can't be sympathetic to the Patriots after Spygate. I, I, I can't be sympathetic after hearing, you know, some of the interviews I've heard uh, with former players. You bring up Jay Feely, um I think it was Ryan Clark that was on Mike and Mike earlier, and he's like, you know, everybody's been saying stuff about the Patriots for years. You play them, and you just always feel like they're one step ahead. Something's going on. He said, I'll give some credit. A lot of that's great coaching. But you just always feel like something suspicious is going on with them. And you know, while we're on the subject, I really can't stand Heath Evans. I'm getting a little sick of him and his homeboy attitude, and his Patriots can do nothing wrong, and Bill Belichick is God, and and Tom Brady is one of his disciples. And uh, I'm getting really sick of Heath Evans. Heath Evans from the NFL Network. Yeah, he's really starting to to kick me in the groin. I'm really starting to uh, dislike him. Um, There are so many former Patriots on ESPN. It's hard to stomach, too. Between Teddy Bruschi and 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 then God help you, I I I don't watch the guy hardly ever um, because of the Sean Taylor fiasco and the things he said after Sean Taylor died. But Colin Cowherd, uh, he can't get enough of Belichick and Brady. So yeah, <laughs> I, I I there's a lot of people out there I can't stand on, on this subject um, and. I'm, I'm probably not impartial on the subject as a Jet fan, so. You know, I really don't but, care if Brady gets suspended or not. You know, I mean, I there's enough things going on in sports that occupy my life, uh, athletic-wise, that, that I really could care less at this point from something that happened six months ago. Um, but I think that um, it needs to be done and over with, and I think that um, we're hearing too much about it. I think that there's a double standard that's going on. Um, you know, the the you know, why isn't Bob Kraft, you know, uh bitching about the fact that um Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the Browns, has to pay ninety two million dollars in fines to truckers as a result of a federal fraud prosecution. You know, how come nothing's happening to him? Why is it okay for Bob Yersey to go driving around with drugs uh, pills and twenty nine thousand dollars in yeah. cash, and we're yeah. not hearing more about this. Um, no, actually, but, excellent point. But you know, two pounds of air pressure gets taken out of a football, and oh my God, the world's coming to an end. Brady, you know, manipulated the AFC Championship game. You know, the Colts still couldn't stop Legarrette Blount. No kidding. Okay, no kidding. I, I I've never made the argument that that what they did wrong or not actually played a big impact on 
on that game. I, you know, and, and I maybe they were more points game. with the balls properly inflated than they did with the balls underinflated. That's right. That's right. The Patriots deserve their due uh, as a great franchise. What they accomplished this past year, um, I'm not trying to take away from that. Yeah, I um, hate the Patriots, but they won the Super Bowl fair and square. Absolutely. Got a little help from the Seahawks at the end. Yeah, it had nothing to do uh, with the football. You still got to throw it. You still got to catch it. Yeah, they 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 get their due for me for for what they've accomplished. I I just think they need a little smackdown because you know the, their history. You, you can't you know fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean you gotta right. You gotta they need to punish now for what they did before. And and this is not a court of law. You know, people say things like double jeopardy, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can make all these cases. The NFL is not the same thing as a court of law. It plays by its own set of rules. It's not, you know... I love when people throw around terms of art like due process. You know, due process yeah. is something that you're entitled to in court as a result of your rights under the 5th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution of the United States. Okay, the NFL does not abide by the United States Constitution. The NFL that's, has that's the right. bylaws. That's right. That's right. We all have jobs, and if you do something wrong at your job and you get fired, you can, you know, if, you, if you're willing, you can, and the Patriots are certainly welcome to do this as well. Um, you know, you can file a lawsuit if you feel like you're wronged. But the rules in the NFL have nothing to do with the court of law. Nothing right. whatsoever. They have, their, Completely different. they have their First Amendment right to say whatever they want. You're right. You have a First Amendment right, and the government can't prosecute you for it. But it doesn't mean that your employer can't fire you over it. That's right. So I am completely unsympathetic to the Patriots. I'm completely unsympathetic to Tom Brady. I, I felt the punishment was suitable, every last bit of it. I, I felt the Patriots were maybe even lucky that it wasn't worse, um, considering, as you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation, the cover-up was worse than the crime. And, and you know, had Brady come out, and just said, hey, you know, I pushed the limit a little bit here. I pushed these ball by, you know, these ball boys pretty hard. Uh, maybe we stretched the, you know, the rules further than we we're supposed to. I'm sorry, it won't happen again. This whole thing would be over, and he wouldn't even the miss suspended. The, the worst part about this whole thing is that two guys that probably work for fifteen or twenty dollars an hour on a part-time basis are getting screwed out of a job. Yep. And all they did, I have no doubt in my mind, use common sense here. They followed orders from somebody higher above them. There's no way somebody in that position would do that independently without being told to do that. It's ridiculous to even make an argument that Brady had no knowledge of what was going on. It's not even worth discussing, in my opinion. If you're a Patriots hey, and Tom Brady asks you to deflate a football, are you gonna deflate that football for him? Of course. Oh yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna deflate it without him telling you to do that? The no. the notion that he the notion that the, he didn't have complete knowledge over that situation. If you wanna make the argument that Belichick didn't, that Robert Kraft didn't, anybody else in the organization didn't, I'll listen to you. But Brady was 100%, in my opinion, involved in that situation from top to bottom. There's no doubt about it. 
So he he, he got right, his just like Sean Payton did. Yeah, it was a lot worse than what Sean Payton did. Uh, you know, and and that that was a sketchy situation too. The way they treated Jonathan Vilma and everything else that happened there. I you know, the iron fist of the NFL is not something that I'm supportive of. In some of these situations, especially with stuff that goes on in between the lines as opposed to outside the lines. Um, I thought they, got, I thought they finally did this. The Ray Rice debacle helped them learn some things. I thought they handled the Greg Hardy situation a lot better. Um, and all that's tied into this, too, which is sad in and of itself. I, I, I want to talk about one more thing, Scott. I want to get off the Brady thing just to talk about one last thing. Sure. And it, it's a serious, it's a serious pet peeve of mine of sports. I try every single year to give the NBA and the NBA playoffs another chance to not disappoint me, and they just continue to. I, I hate to sound conspiratorial. It, you know. Maybe I'm off base by calling it conspiratorial, but the officiating in the NBA playoffs is just constantly something that ruins the game for me. Today, the Houston Rockets eliminated the Los Angeles Clippers in a seven-game series. The Rockets deserve props. They out and out won games five and six and seven, fair and square. I have no doubt about that. I'm not blaming the officials for any of those last three games. If you go back and watch game two, though, which was in Houston after the Clippers had taken game one in Houston and the Clippers clearly looked like the better team in game two. They did everything that they were supposed to do. And I'm not a Clippers fan. I, I don't even have a favorite team in the NBA right now because I it, it just I can't stomach it. <clears throat> the Clippers outplayed Houston significantly, in my opinion, in game two. And Houston shot something like 70 free throws and – somehow pulled out game two. The Clippers won games three and four with no trouble whatsoever, and then they collapsed. If I was a Clipper fan, I'd be saying to myself, we should have swept that damn series. The referees gave them game two. That left the door open just enough for them to burst through and win games five, six, and seven. What you have here in my conspiratorial mind, the NBA trying to extend the series by helping the Rockets out in game two, you know, for revenue. And he ended up having the wrong team winning the series. It just it just sickens me. I, I just can't take the NBA seriously. Well, they should have the referee playoff games. And he's not alone. He's not alone. I I, I just I, I just you never know what you're going to get watching the NBA. That's the problem. <clears throat> I'd rather watch a boring four game series with the better team winning in a sweep than an exciting seven-game series where officiating is deciding two or three games or even just one game in this case, and the wrong team ends up winning. It's just, they, they really got to clean it up. I, I, I just I can't take them seriously until they clean it up. I have to agree. But, officiating, I think, the officiating from what I've seen has been horrible. Um, you know, I, I really haven't been watching much of the playoffs uh, because the, the Heat weren't invited this year. And... Um, so uh, I decided to uh, boycott most of the playoffs, but I, I haven't watched some of the games out, out west because uh, I am interested in uh, Golden State and I am interested in the uh, Clippers. 
but I, I just, uh, you know, I, I think every time Joey, Craw- you know, Crawford hits the floor, I think that, that there's a problem. And this goes back to, you know, the last couple of years, you know, with the heat in the playoffs that, that I've noticed. I mean, he's, uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen when, when, when he takes the court. And that that's not the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> and I mean, I I out of all the teams left, just because they're fun to watch, I'd root for Golden State. But I caught a little bit of their Game Six clincher against Memphis. And at the end of the third quarter, uh, the Memphis player—I don't know if it was Mike Conley, whoever it was—dribbled <clears throat> in the front court, quite obviously got fouled. You know, with about three seconds left, they didn't call it. The ball bounced free. It was about a three-point game at that point, or maybe a four-point game. I'm not sure. But Memphis was really fighting hard to stay close to um, Golden State. And the, the the Memphis player gets fouled. The ball springs free. Steph Curry picks it up and shoots about a 60-footer and swishes it at the buzzer at the end of the third quarter. And that, that was a five- or a six-point swing. And that, that was all she wrote. That that completely yeah. took the win, the win at Memphis. Now, mind you, I, I'm admitting that I was rooting for Golden State in that game because I like watching them play. But they, they screwed it up. I, I don't know how you don't call that. And, and by not calling that, they directly decided game six and 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 really gave Golden State an advantage. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I know basketball is just a, a difficult sport to officiate, but I... I and I and I watch college games and I bitch about Duke and and you know some of the calls I watch in college, but the discrepancy between the NBA and college in terms of officiating getting it wrong, in my humble opinion, is is tremendous. The NBA is the worst officiated uh, uh, sport by a mile, in my opinion, out of all the major sports, and that even includes boxing, which we know <laughs> has its share of bad decisions and corruption. I, I just can't take it seriously until they get it fixed. They, they, there's just too many mistakes. There's just too many games that are cited by officials. I, I just, I can't take it anymore. On that note, Boston, I'll let you have the last word. No, that was my last word. And uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate, any, I appreciate anybody that listens to the the recording of this. Um, and Scott, I appreciate you coming on and and talking with me. It was fun. I thought we covered a lot of stuff. Um, we managed to bash Al, Al Golden once again. <laughs> we had some good baseball discussions. It was fun. We'll do it again. We'll see what happens. Uh, hopefully next week at this time we'll uh, be the ACC tournament champions. Uh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to University of Miami baseball uh, run in the ACC tournament and beyond. I I, I like I said, I'm new to college baseball, but it's been fun this year, and I think it's going to continue to be fun. All right. Until next time. On that note, I'll catch you later. Thanks for joining, Scott. Anytime. All right. Bye-bye.